Hello and welcome to another episode of The Album Years with myself, Stephen Wilson, and my co-host, Mr. Timothy Bones. Hello, Tim. Hello. And today is quite special because we are going to be, for the first time, I think I'm right in saying, we are going to be doing a year that is adjacent to one that we've already done. Now, I think I'm right in saying the very first episode we did was 1980. Is that right? Does that sound right? It was, yeah. Yeah. So today we're going to be doing 1979. Now, this is not a coincidence. This, I think this is partly to do with, with our generation, Tim, but you and I, this kind of era, this kind of late 70s, early 80s period of four or five years or so, is very close to our hearts, isn't it? I, I think we were the right age, you know, both sort of just coming into our teen years, and it was a golden era also, I think, for, for music anyway, wasn't it? We're kind of spoilt for choice with this period, aren't we? Absolutely, and I think what was interesting is that at almost every single level, whether it was kind of experimental, underground, or very mainstream um there are a lot of creative ideas about and um as with 1980 i mean we're just going to really struggle to get Mm. our favorites and i genuinely think we're probably going to miss out about 30 of our favorites in this i think we had what was it three or four pages worth i think this is the most i've ever had on on a single list for for one episode yeah we i've got three i've got about Wow, it must be about 120 albums on this list. But, the, you know, they're, they're all good and they're all like, oh, I don't want to leave that one out. But I think we're obviously, as always, we're going to try and focus on a, on a small group of albums and try and sort of me- give a mention to some of the others. But we're going to try and focus on albums that we feel are perhaps not the obvious ones. Um, now, I mean, is it as simple, Tim, as that this is kind of the fallout from the kind of punk rock aesthetic where anyone can make music and you don't have to be a trained musician? To, is that why there's this kind of explosion of people that are not necessarily, you know, proper musicians suddenly making really ambitious and experimental music at this time? Is it as simple as that? I don't know, because actually if you look at artists like Elvis Costello and the Attractions or... Squeeze or even the Ian Jury Band. These were accomplished musicians who were every bit as good as anybody in Pink Floyd, for example. In some ways, maybe it's to do with the opening up of the industry, that it was more open. There's a great line, I think it's from Frank Zappa, that he was talking in the late 60s, that one of the reasons why the late 60s was so interesting was because the record companies didn't actually know what people liked. So they'd sign 10 bands. And out of that, you'd get people like Frank Zappa. And I think the same thing was kind of happening in the late 70s, that actually a lot of the executives didn't know what was hip, what was right. And so you did get accomplished songwriters who'd been around for years before, you know, like Elvis Costello, even Kate Bush got signed during this period that was very much in flux. Yeah, maybe maybe I was I was simplifying things there. But I mean, I don't think it was necessarily to do with the fact that, you know, it's not to do with the musicianship. There's something else. It's a kind of aesthetic of punk, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult for, to, for me to imagine, for example, uh, bands like Talking Heads or The Police, uh, you know, or Madness. Uh, it's difficult for me to imagine any of these bands breaking through to the mainstream if punk hadn't happened. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Anyway, so to cut a long story short, which we're obviously not very good at on this show, but we'll try. Um, we, we are we are so overwhelmed with the albums that we want to talk about that we're going for the first time to break up a year into two separate episodes. We just I, I just think we looked at this list and we felt there's no way we can get through this list and do it justice in a single you know 50 minute episode. So we're going to have 1979 part one, and then next time we're going to have 1979 part two, which will hopefully give us uh, a lot more opportunity. To to, well, to not skim over some of these records, which I think will be doing them doing them an injustice. So let's 
so let's get into it tim then shall we 1979 part one um let's i mean i guess let's start with gary newman and and Boy army now he made an album as both a solo artist and within Tubeway Army this year, both absolute yeah. classics. Uh, Tubeway Army's Replicas, which of course has our, our friends Electric on it, and Gary Newman's the, the Pleasure Principle, which has Cars on it. So his two biggest hits came from this year. Two different projects, although let's be honest, it's difficult to to really see where Tubeway Army, the band, stops and Gary Newman, the solo artist, starts. I think they're both fantastic albums, and I, and I always kind of it, it's a bizarre comparison in a way, but I've always seen Gary Newman as being the Black Sabbath of this particular movement, in the sense that he's got such a signature sound and, in a way, producing wonders within quite a limited vocabulary. Um, and I remember, you know, hearing Our Friends Electric, and it was one of those songs that, certainly when I was at school, everybody was talking about it the next day after they'd heard it. You know, this was one of the pieces that kind of cut through whatever genre you liked. It was unlike anything anybody had heard. And, and it seems odd now because of course we'd had Kraftwerk, of course we'd had Ultravox, but actually there was something mm. really unique about his vocal delivery. There was a big thing at the time that David Bowie uh, apparently felt quite insulted by Newman imitating him. And I have to say as a huge Bowie fan, I couldn't really see very much in comparison. No. Really, of, of course there's an aspect in the makeup, in the use of synthesizer, but you know Newman's compositional style, his voice, even his lyrical obsessions—the whole Philip K. Dick mm. futurism—was very much his. And a little like Black Sabbath, once he'd found that sound, he mined it and mm. mined it and mined it. And there are some wonderful pieces, you know, "Down in the Park's always one of my favourites mm. in that period as well. I, I you know, I, I, I can see. I mean, I can see where Bowie kind of is part of his DNA, but I can see how he's very much influenced by Bowie playing Thomas Newton in The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's that kind of image, isn't it? That kind of slightly alien, uh, very pale, tall, white automaton, you know, almost kind of aut yeah, yeah. that kind of autism, which, as we now know, was genuine. I mean, I think Gary Newman <laughs> yes, was, yeah, was yeah. genuinely quite autistic. And that was his image. Uh, and he played it to perfection, uh, whether knowingly mm. or not, he played it to perfection. And lest, lest we not forget, wrote some in incredibly good pop songs as well. And of course, that's always the trick, isn't it? You can have everything in place, but if you uh, if you can't write these great pop songs uh, to, complete the, to complete the picture, it's not going to happen for you. But he had the songs too, didn't he? I mean, he had everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, something like Cars is just an amazingly hook-laden piece, uh, instrumentally, vocally. Yeah. Um, and from quite simple materials, which I guess is what you're saying, you know, it's coming out of punk. You couldn't necessarily have imagined a single like that being a hit in 1975, because another influence clearly is Kraftwerk when you're talking about the automaton sure. image. Yeah. Well, if it's not if it's not a paradox to say so, it's almost like he took the Kraftwerk thing of we are the robots and he kind of humanized it, didn't he? He, he gave it <laughs> yes, he yes. gave it a personality. So the, the, the Kraftwerk thing is it's almost de-emphasizing the cult of the personality. It's like we're not even going to we're not even going to appear in our own videos. We're just going to put these mannequins there in place. Gary Newman kind of in a way took the opposite thing, which is it's all about my personality. It's all about the fact that I am weird and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to push that as part of my shtick, you know, and it really worked. I remember there was a kid at my school at the time that just dressed and acted exactly like Gary Newman. He was completely <laughs> obsessed, you know, and everyone else took the piss out of him, of course, but he kind of got away with it, you know. Uh, so it, it, it's, 
it's a, it's just one of those kind of like moments in time, isn't it, where I think everything just comes together almost despite the artist, you know. I mean, you could never have planned or predicted for a Gary Newman to be so massive no. so instantly. And, of course, he was on an independent label. A, a major labels would never have touched him. And lest we forget, the music press hated him and crucified him at the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, he would continue to do so, continue to do so. He was seen as a yeah. bit of a laughing stock. So he, you know, he kind of he kind of cut right through all that as Led Zeppelin had in the previous decade, because Led Zeppelin were hated mm. by the music press too, to become the biggest artist for at least a 12 month period, you know. Yeah. And I think he carried on, you know, this winning streak artistically, at least until the mid 80s. Mm. I mean, if you listen to some of his early 80s albums in particular, where he's expanding the palette with fretless bass. Yeah, Dance is a great album. Um, there's some amazing yeah. pieces on that. And, you know, he's, he incorporates influences from funk and disco, but he does it in such mm. a robotic, mm. unique, Newman-esque way that he yes. personalises whatever he touches. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, personally, I'm a fan of those um, early 80s Newman albums as well, because he continued to stretch himself. And thankfully as well, he's one of those artists who's still around making interesting albums and still seeming curious about what he can do. And these days he's actually manipulating orchestras, full orchestras to his will. He's kept his fan base, hasn't he? He's still got, I mean, his new, his, his last album, I think, which came out, uh, you know, a few months ago was a top five album and he's still got yeah, a yeah. very, very obsessive fan. I think partly because he is unique in the history of pop music. He is unique. Um, I mean, I've, I've got him in the sort of synth pop category here. For, for those that have listened to the episodes before, you'll know that we try and we try and group the albums together. So I've got this little category. I've also got the Human League who released uh, Reproduction this year, which is a, a, yeah. also a great record. Although their day as kind of mainstream crossover successes would come uh, would come later on with Dare of course uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra's Solid State Survivor and a lot of other albums that I think are somewhere uh, between being kind of post-punk and synth-pop so we're going to talk about I think Simple Minds album from this year Real to Real Cacophony mm-hmm. which you I just remind the listeners you completely dismissed in a, in a previous episode <laughs> uh, saying that you felt Empires and Dance was the first proper Simple Minds album and I, and I made a point at the time of saying that that was completely inaccurate because Real to Real Cacophony is also a masterpiece but it's kind of an album that fits somewhere between you know, synth- synthesized pop and, and post-punk and also you could say things that, you could say the same of things like magazines Secondhand Daylight so so maybe that would dovetail nicely into talking about what was going on in, in post-punk now po- post-punk it seems to me has come up in a few episodes for us it's it's a kind of it's a kind of music that um, obviously stating the obvious it came out of punk it came out of the punk aesthetic um, but it was it was something which was um I guess it was played, it was adopted by musicians who felt too limited by the simplicity of punk. And they they had pretensions in the best possible sense of the word. They wanted to make great pop and they wanted to make great high concept artistic statements. But they, there was also something about it that couldn't have happened without punk. And I think the one that's the most important to me, well, there's two, I know there's three, no, there's four. Mm -hmm. There's so many. Um, (laughs) Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures, we're not going to talk about. I think it's a masterpiece, but the bottom line is it's kind of canon anyway. I don't think we need to talk any more about that album. But there are other albums, XTC's Drums and Wires, just a genius album for me. Wires 154. Now, I wanted to talk about this album because I think it's fair to say, I I don't know if you'd agree with me, Wire were kind of like they were kind of like the Pink Floyd of post-punk, weren't they? There's something very intellectual 
uh, and high concept about why not not just the music but the way it was packaged uh, the yeah. lyrics they kind of have the conceptual influence of the Waters era but also that real pop psychedelic sensibility of mm. Barrett which I hear in Newman's voice in particular on that so you know they're, they're, they're very good pop song writers and of course they have that what we now see as the post-punk sound to perfection, the sort of the razor guitars, but they were bringing in more atmosphere, more synth textures. Um, are, are there even clarinets on this album? I mean, we're talking about two years on from the kind of the peak of yeah. the punk anyone can play, you know, the Mark Perry alternative TV, learn three chords, go and form a band. We're only two years on from that. And here we are with Wire making something which to me has much more in common with you know with weighty intellectual progressive rock and by the way this is all a good thing for me i'm not i'm not <laughs> criticizing it for that so i i haven't actually talked about the the one album um that i think is the preeminent masterpiece of post-punk and we're going to do that now but let's just quickly uh list the other ones the stranglers the raven from this year which is which is a good record i think it's beginning to tail off a little bit for me the previous album black and white is my favorite anyway i, I like the raven. i like the raven yeah. very much too yeah simple minds real to real cacophony we've mentioned uh buzzcock's a different kind of tension uh, the Slits, Cuts, The Pop Group Y, Gang of Fours, Entertainment, a lot of very inventive music there. But for me, the preeminent masterpiece of the whole post-punk scene was made by an artist, or at least one of the members of this band had genuinely come from punk. In fact, you could argue is the punk rock musician. Uh, Johnny Lydon, Johnny Rotten as, Johnny Rotten as was. <laughs> And the second Public Image Limited album from this year, known as Metal Box or Second Edition, um, to me, this is like an album that is so extraordinary that it's never really been successfully imitated by anyone. It seems to me like a sound that just came from nowhere and through no fault of its own didn't really prevail at all. I don't know why. I mean, it's... I don't know. I don't know. I don't almost don't know how, much, how to describe it. Um, it's just out on its own, isn't it? This album. It's an extraordinary album. I mean, I still find Lydon, you know, is a tremendous innovator and Public Image were a very important band, but I find it difficult to love, mostly because of my aversion to, to Lydon's voice, although I think he's great. Um, but I love, you know, Jar Wobble, Keith Levine. It's an amazing band as much as anything else. And they're creating an astonishing sound. And once more, you know, they're coming from so many different backgrounds. You know, Lydon was very informed regarding kraut rock, art rock, prog rock, experimental music, uh, perhaps even, you know, Stockhausen, it sounds like on this at times. His biggest influence at the time was reggae, was reggae music and, right. dub, and dub music. Well, yeah. Wobble, of course, was dub, yeah. you know, huge yeah. dub fan as well. And so, you know, the collision of, of influences is fantastic. And you're right, it is a sound out on its own. And, and they continue to do this. You know, I liked um, Flowers of Romance, which, Amazing. of course, took out Wobble. The drum sound on Flowers yeah. of Romance alone is worth buying the album for. So you, you have these little chunks of music. And just for people that don't know, Metal Box was, was originally released in a film can as three 12-inch singles, which is something that I think they very much directly took from, you know, the sort of Jamaican dub artists this idea you're making dub plates so you break the music down into three 
12-inch singles, each of 20 minutes each. Later on, it was released as a double album called Second Edition, which is actually the, the version of the album that I, I first became familiar with. And the music is almost like little, it's almost like you're kind of just cutting into the middle of a session. I mean, some of the tracks just start mid-flow and they're kind of unceremoniously cut off in the middle of middle of flow. So it's almost like the tracks could have been, they could have been playing that track all day and you've mm. just taken a little five-minute chunk out of the middle at random. It has that kind of almost found sound, like eavesdropping quality to it. But it still sounds like nothing else I've ever heard. I mean, apart from maybe the very first Wolfgang Press album, um, maybe a little bit of influence on some of the early factory bands like Section 25, this sound never really uh, caught on, did it? Um, Okay, so um, shall we move on, Tim? So um, let's talk about... Uh, you know what? Let's we've we've kind of met, we've kind of paid lip service to there talking about post punk. Let's talk about progressive rock in 1979, um, because um, it's an interesting year, isn't it? Because it, progressive rock is supposed to be dead, isn't it? In 1979. Yeah, and to all intents and purposes, it is with the music papers. I mean, right. It's interesting because I, I kind of bought. Um, you know, this is when I'd started buying the music papers and. At the time, I'd bought an awful lot of music. And um, for me, and I don't know that it's just because I, I lived outside the major cities, anything went. I just kind of listened to music and I bought mm. what I liked. And so, you know, I've got specific days where I can remember going out and buying The Ruts, Babylon's Burning, Angelic Upstarts, I'm an Upstart, and Genesis Foxtrot. Mm. And this was from Rumbelows, obviously, you know, I remember the great buying. music yeah. shops of yes. the day. And um, but progressive rock was still there and a lot of the artists were still in some ways at the top of the game. And a lot of the artists, in a sense, had just ignored the prevailing trends. It was an interesting time. But one of the, the funniest things I remember or not funny if you're the artists was I think it was Melody Maker in the early 80s. And um, they decided that they were going to bin any votes for yes genesis weather report all of the people who had previously won mm. the polls to be fair though that's what pop music has always done isn't it um it's always out with the old guard in with the new isn't it and and i guess part of that is what keeps pop music fresh and keeps it progressing at least it did you know for a very long time yeah but at the same time you know we've talked about some of these artists that are on this list here and i know you also like me believe that for example jethro tull's stormwatch which was which came from this year which was crucified by by the music yeah. press at the time and didn't really sell i think it, it scraped into the top 30 you know but now in hindsight you look back and you say well that is a classic Toll record. And it's just as good, uh, at least I believe, just as good as the I ones think that so, Yeah, totally. And, and it sounded that at the time. And one of the things about Stormwatch for me is that everything from the cover to the sound, it really captures the dismal late 1970s political climate mm. in the way that Pink Floyd's Animals does as well. Mm. As much as the angelic upstarts, mm. as much as Sham 69. Of course, it's a more articulate assault on the times but yeah there's something very current about that and it's got a um quite a dark emotional edge stormwatch as well as yeah. you know the beautiful dun run gill my know. favorite jethro tull track in fact this album has my two favorite jethro tull tracks on it dun run gill and flying dutchman yes it's it's an odd one isn't it i mean it's after this album uh ian anderson definitely made a very very 
concerted effort to do something different. So this is really the last album, you know, perhaps not coincidentally, the last album of the 70s, but also the last mm. album to have that kind of classic Jethro Tull sound, you know. I've never quite understood why this album is associated as being part of a trilogy with songs from The Wood and, he and Heavy Horses. They call it the folk trilogy. I don't see this album do, as a yeah. folk album at all, you know. Uh, it, it's like, as you say, it's much has a much darker undercurrent. Uh, it, it has some real rockers on it as well, things like um, Something's on the Move. Um, mm. I love this record. I was I was very lucky enough to to remix this record comparatively recently, and I and I, I gained a whole new new kind of respect for it. Yeah, and and actually, it has a sound distinct from other albums. I kind of always saw it as being closer in a way to that kind of dense rock that they were producing on Benefits and Aqualung, and it was that updated to the late seventies politically and musically, and sonically, it has a few new tricks. With um, I think for necessity's sake, given what happened, um, Ian Anderson playing the bass guitar on this and playing it extremely well mm. or in an extremely interesting way. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I've never quite understood the hatred, but part of the thing was that when you were reading the papers at this time, um, some mediocre new wave albums would be declared the future of music and albums like The Wall... Albums like Stormwatch were completely crucified. So, I mean, we won't talk about The Wall because it is canon. It's been discussed and over-discussed, as always, you know, with, with these classic albums. But I want to talk about something else which is happening in the world of progressive rock. Now, again, we've kind of mentioned how the press were doing their best to kind of bury the genre completely. And, of course, there are bands that have been around for many years that are still making records and still selling records and still filling arenas, presumably. You know, the Floyds, the, the, the Jethro Tulls, uh, Camel made an album this year, Mike Oldfield made an album this year. Um, but strangely, there are two or three bands here that are still at the beginning, relatively at the beginning of their career. Sky. Now, Sky is surely an anomaly because Sky make... I'm not a fan. I, I find their music it's mm. very mediocre. It's very vanilla, mediocre prog rock, isn't it? It's like a, it's almost like a, a sort of blanded out Mike Oldfield in a way, sort of yeah, know, pay, mm. pay, paying sort of homage to the classics, but playing it with rock instrumentation uh, in a very kind of stiff white way. You know, it's but this this band were massive. Uh, the first two albums were number one records, and they had hit singles. Um, how how did this happen, you know, in an era when supposedly um, punk and post-punk and disco had done away with all of this stuff? A new band could come along. And they're not the only band either. UK have just made their second record. I don't think it's sold mm -hmm. that well, but the, the, the Enid are around as well, just relatively still early in their yeah, career, yeah. the Enid. Again, another band, it's almost like it's, it's, it's not just progressive rock. It's the most pompous form of progressive rock and I like the I do like I'm not a fan of Scar but I do like the Enid but it's this idea of like you know taking classical music and rocking it up I mean what could be less cool than that to your average Stranglers Angelic Upstarts fan in 1979 than a rock band rocking up the classics and yeah presumably doing okay with it. You know, I mean, there must have been an audience still for this, as, as Sky proves. How, how do we explain this anomaly? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, I think it was kind of happening throughout the late 70s in the sense that if you look at 1978, bands like um, Renaissance were having the greatest success in their 
career mm. at a point when they really should have been buried by the prevailing trends. And War of the Worlds was one of the biggest albums of 1978. Yes. So I guess that, you know, for every movement, there's an antithesis of that movement. You know, it, it was an era in which these extremes could succeed. But but it was interesting. So kind of going back to my point about how I was buying from all sides um, what was interesting to me is... Don't tell us the story about the Angelic Upstarts Genesis again, Tim. We've heard it. Anyway, so I went into Rumbelows <laughs> and I bought... Angelic Upstarts. I bought... Genesis the... Foxtrot. Uh, yeah, we've heard that one. Yeah, go but, on. But in truth, actually, I loved Babylon's Burning. But the reason I bought I'm an Upstart is that I'd heard that Paul Thompson of Roxy Music was going to join them. OK, is that true? So... Did he? He did eventually. He was a member oh, at one point. Yeah, the Angelic Upstarts. Um, yeah, because actually Mency and the boys weren't necessarily favourites. Whereas, you know, Babylon's Burning was a fantastic single mm. from that period. And the Ruts went on to work with another favourite of mine, Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne, yeah. Um, but what was interesting to me is that I could hear the connections. And, um, you know, this is genuinely a, a, a true story. Because The Raven, which we've kind of passed over, I loved The Raven. And in many ways, I saw The Raven as being a kind of contemporary, progressive work. And I remember at the time saying, well, you know, what they're doing is a kind of reinventing the progressive vocabulary in the punk era. And I said this to one of my cousins, who was a huge fan. And uh, in a kind of a Three Stooges style way, I got punched over the head three times. He couldn't bear this thought. Right. And of course, years later, we find out that Jean-Jacques Bernal and Dave Greenfield were huge progressive rock fans. I, I don't remember if I've told this story. If I have, I'll cut it out. But um, one of the things that always blew my mind was if you ever get a copy of the book by Deborah Curtis about her husband called Touching at a Distance, mm -hmm. which is what I, I believe is what the movie, the Anton Corbin movie was based on. Um, there is a photo, as in, as in many paperback books, there is a photo sort of section in the middle of the book. And there are various pictures of Ian, you know, as a child, you know, with his family growing up, you know, as, as always with these kind of biograph biographies. And there's one picture which always I always remember, which is a picture of Ian standing in his back garden at the age of 14, proudly wearing a Nectar T-shirt. <laughs> And that just blows my mind, you know. But it, but of course it makes perfect sense, not necessarily with Nectar, but it makes perfect sense that Ian Curtis at the age of 14, you know, what would have been the music ever all the kids were listening to? It wasn't only hmm. Roxy Music and David Bowie, it was all that stuff too. So um, that that speaks volumes, doesn't it, I think? And, and, you know, well, it, uh, interestingly enough, um, I think it was Pete Shelley was uh, doing an interview and he said, well, you know the coda of one of the tracks from our first EP, Spiral Scratch? Um, we actually played a little focus riff wow. at the end as a joke. Yeah. So again, yeah. those influences were clearly in the mix. And, and I sort of got involved in making music in the early 80s. And uh, a few of the musicians I worked with were a lot older than I was. And they'd been either in Liverpudlian or Mancunian new wave or post-punk bands. And every single one of them had come through the Yes Floyd, King Crimson focus taste machine if you like some of them from classical and jazz backgrounds as well because because in a way that was the punk of its era wasn't it progressive rock was the kind of underground music of the early 70s in the way that punk was the underground music of the late 70s because it didn't necessarily translate into massive single sales you know at the time progressive rock was 
you know, the thing, the singles artists were people like T-Rex, you know, uh, and Sweet and Slade. It wasn't progressive rock. So it was the underground music of its generation, of its era, wasn't it? In the same way that punk five years later became the underground music for the kids of that generation. Absolutely. I think this is a perfect way for us to dovetail into a section which... um, which I've called Keeping Up With The Times, which is, we've talked about musicians coming through that kind of transition from growing up with progressive rock, but making punk rock. But there's also another generation of musicians that did both, that made progressive rock and actually transitioned beautifully Mm. into making music, which was more of the time of post-punk. It's not a long list, but um, some of the people we've got on the list are, for example, Peter Hamill, our old friend Peter Hamill, very much transitioning beautifully into albums like Peter Hamill, PH7. Then we have Led Zeppelin making In Through the Outdoor, which is now where they kind of embrace uh, having made Presence, which we talked about on the 1976 episode, which was almost a keyboard-free album, uh, they go completely in the other direction here and, and they give a lot more uh, you know, kind of freedom to John Paul Jones to experiment with synthesizers. It's very much Zeppelin trying to transition into a new era. Not entirely successful, but I think it is... A, it's, it's, I mean, Led Zeppelin never made a bad record as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, Hawkwind, PXR5, they've come out of this yeah. kind of space rock era, sci-fi, and they've transitioned into something with Bob Calvert on vocal much more new wave um uh but the three i think that are the best examples here are uh one of which i'm going to ask you to talk about because i'm not so familiar with it let's start with this one which is sparks who made an album this year with Giorgio Moroda producing called Number One Song in Heaven. Now, I'm very familiar with the single, the title track, which I think is amazing. I'm not so familiar with the album. So tell us about this album, Tim. Well, the album, weirdly enough, when we were making Love You To Bits, I kind of saw this and Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm as being something of a blueprint of what we were attempting to do because um, with Number One Song in Heaven, it's effectively six pieces that almost form a disco suite. So it's very ambitious. It's often texturally quite complex and quite beautiful. Um, It's also full of magnificent melodies. And it's interesting, there are a couple of albums during this year where I hear the birth of a band I've mentioned before, The Associates, but you particularly hear it in the way in which Mail sings Mm. on this album. And this is their collaboration with Giorgio Moroder. And if anything, it's my favourite Giorgio Moroder work because it's a beautiful album length suite and it's uh, one of my favorite sparks albums um loved the singles at the time and it's something that you know i still find quite thrilling and again it does the thing that you talked about with i think it was magma where they will shift the tempo within a piece as well but this mm. is within with, with electronics it, it's playful accessible experimental and what they did of course was bypass the new wave bypass punk and go into the other area that had been commercially popular at that time disco i mean i love the single for some reason i've never got around to to investigating the album i mean it's kind of, sparks at this point is kind of you kind of mentioned this phrase electro disc it's like electronic disco with that kind of operatic voice over the top isn't it yeah uh and and it, I, I can just that's just a dream combination is it in a way at least for us anyway uh and as you yeah, yeah. as you say the associates very much took that as a blueprint you know didn't they um but two other examples bill nelson made red noise this now he made 
Sound on Sound, the Red Noise album. So just to clarify, Bill Nelson's Red Noise was the name of the band. The album was called Sound on Sound. It was the only Red Noise album. And it was his attempt to kind of reinvent himself after Bebop Deluxe um, with more of a new wave kind of punk edge, isn't it? But it's but it's the thing is, it's still got the cleverness that, you know, some artists, they just can't they can't hide it, can they? You know, XTC always had this. I want to call it a problem. It mm. wasn't a problem. At, uh, it wasn't a problem in retrospect, but at the time it was almost <laughs> a problem that they they could a sickness. They couldn't hide it from the music press that they were clever, you know. Um, and I think Bill Bill Nelson's got that too, isn't it? Red Noise is some really quite complex musical sort of uh, gymnastics on this record, but superficially it has all the hallmarks of a very spiky new wave post-punk record doesn't it i absolutely love this record you see this is what i'm not so sure about because um i quite like drastic plastic drastic plastic is coming out of bowie's heroes to a certain extent and maybe is too close to that blueprint at times and i really like what nelson goes on to do in the early 80s um the love that whirls i think is maybe for me his his best album but quit dreaming and get off the beam i think is a fantastic album as well but he sounds more natural on those i think my, my problem with with red noise kind of is twofold i think that vocally he has that kind of um andy partridge seal bark yeah. it seems as if he's trying for that comedy punk voice a little too hard whereas on drastic plastic He's still got that quite natural Nelson take on Bowie. And by Quit Dreaming, he's found his own voice. And, you know, Love That Worlds and a lot of the other 80s albums, Chimera, I loved. But I don't know why. It was just that thing where it seemed a little too... It was trying too hard for the punk credentials. And it was far too fiddly for my taste. You know, this was as complex as any prog or jazz fusion well, album you, you could listen uh, you, to. So you've never, been a, you've never been a particular fan of Cardiacs. For me, this is like the origins of that Cardiac sound. I love that, I love that kind of combination of punk energy, irreverence and complicated progressive rock. Uh, you know, that kind of mixture of energy and, and finesse for me. I'm a sucker for that. Uh, so, so am I. I guess it's just in this case, um, as I said, you know, by Quit Dreaming, I'm with him. It's just this album, for whatever reason, always kind of left me slightly cold. And I think you're entirely right that it's a brilliant piece of work. It was a tremendous influence on Cardiacs, who, of course, had released their first single in 79, I think. And... Um, I can see it. You know, as with Public Image, I would agree with everything you say about these albums being important, influential, anything but compromised or safe or weak. Yet it just kind of doesn't quite communicate to me. And I and and always you try and quantify this. So for me, it's partly that, you know, the voice seems to be trying that little bit too hard for attitude and I've always been left cold by this kind of delirious dexterity. I mean, I can take it sometimes, you know, Return to Forever could sometimes do this. And yes, certainly had a kind of a magic with their delirious dexterity. I don't know why this just always left me slightly cold. Yeah, so one other album we should definitely mention as, as Keeping Up With The Times is, is Fripp's Exposure as well, which is um, uh, simultaneously 100% Fripp, could not be more Fripp. But at the same time, it, it is a reinvention, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's working with... Um, 
you know, soul singers and he's working with the Roches and he's got Hamill involved in this record and he's working with uh, Peter Gabriel. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost it's almost like a, a summation of everything he's done and everyone he's worked with until yeah, that yeah. point. But it comes across, I think it does come across with a real kind of edge, doesn't it, this record? And I know Crimson Records always had an edge in that sense, but this record, it definitely seems to belong to, to the post-punk era. In a sense, isn't he fine-tuning for it? Because almost all of those elements have been in his work before. You know, the Frippertronics have been in his work with Eno. Um, and even the, you know, the edge of pieces like Breathless you can hear in red. And he is perfectly fine-tuning it to the era. And what's amazing about Exposure for me is that it manages to be cutting edge, in tune with what's happening, especially with the New York scene. But also, it has quite a beautiful M.O.R. sheen. You know, the pieces with Daryl Hall or um, I think it's Terry Roach who sings on this one. Um, and the version of Here Comes the Flood, I think, is perhaps is the greatest version of one of Gabriel's greatest songs. So let, let's move on uh, to something completely different now. Let's let's talk about, uh, I guess, the singer-songwriter scene. You know, and I, I, we talked previously about how perhaps... You know, the progressive rock scene, having grown up through the 70s, was going through a fairly odd time towards the end of the 70s, sort of derided by the the media, but still musically, you know, kind of was up there and still had its fans. And I guess the same is partly true of of the singer-songwriter scene. Um, Now, you know some of these albums that I don't. I don't know the Randy Newman album, Born Again. I don't know the Annette Peacock album, The Perfect Release. But the two that you wanted to talk about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, are... The Marianne Faithful album, Broken English, which I do know, um, and the Alex Chilton album. Alex Chilton, of course, from Big Star, uh, from Like Flies on Sherbets, which I did listen to uh, because you'd, you'd mentioned it. I didn't think it was very good, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan. I love the first Big Star album, and I love about half of the third Big Star album. I, I remember those kind of gorgeous ballads like Holocaust um, from the third album, and I adore the first album. This, to me, is like somebody going out of their way to sound shit uh, in, an at- in an attempt. Now, uh, this may be very unfair. In a, just this is based on one listen, by the way. Somebody going out of their way to sound as shit as they can in, a, in an attempt to align themselves with the kind of punk era. Now, I don't know how much of that is artifice and how much of it is genuine. Maybe he was completely off his head and that's just naturally the way it sounded. I, I, I didn't get it, I have to say. So... Maybe you say you really like it, so maybe you can explain to us what you like about it. Well, actually, I've not heard it for years, but I used to really like this album, and I liked it partly because there was a quality I kind of liked that a lot of the American bands sometimes had. Patti Smith sometimes had it. Um, Richard Helen the Voidoids had it, where they were taking a kind of Gene Vincent rock and roll influence, and they were twisting it. I suppose what I liked about it is that it's almost taking the innocence and the optimism of that kind of 50s, especially sort of early Elvis Presley, Gene Vincent rock and roll and 60s girl group music and twisting it into something darker. And that is kind of what I heard in the Alex Chilton. And I think he was being quite honest um, in terms of his own influences. And perhaps, as you say, I think it's more of a kind of chemically induced expression of where he was rather than an attempt to sound like Robert Quine or whoever was the guitarist in the no wave scene at that point. It was um, 
most influential. Um, the, the, the album I kept thinking of when I was listening to this album, the album it reminded me the most is Skip Spence's Awe album and also perhaps Sid, right. Sid Barrett's Madcap Laughs. It's the sound of somebody going to pieces, you know, their muse is kind of going to pieces. Now, I like the Skip Spence album. I like the Sid Barrett album. I didn't particularly like this album. Didn't didn't appeal to me. I love his voice on, you know, on things like the first Big Star album and, and some of the tracks on the third album. Here, he just sounds like he's, he's lost it and he's drunk and he all that kind of beauty in his voice and that emotional quality has just kind of been reduced to this kind of drunken drawl. And I can see how maybe if you're really into an artist, sometimes those albums are fascinating. You know, the sound of someone falling apart. You know, Bob Dylan's self-portrait. I'm a big apologist for that record. I really like that record. Yeah. But most Dylan fans would point at it and say, you know, that's the sound of Dylan. It had his absolute nadir. It's the sound of Dylan losing his way. So I can see if you're a big Chilton fan, maybe this would be fascinating. But we're not talking about an artist who made a string of amazing albums here we're talking about an artist who made two or three re great records in the mid 70s disappeared and then came back with this uh yeah and it's just not very good to me and it's like less than 30 minutes it's it's mercifully brief <laughs> i'll give it that it well it's, it, it reminds me a little as well of suicide and uh, i think i always had slightly more time for suicide than you and again because suicide although they were using synths and it's something that had become, you know, by the late 70s, early 80s, considerably more popular. Again, something in the suicide musical vocabulary, it's almost as if Elvis has gone electropop and Elvis has gone psychotic electropop. And um, there's just something in that sound and that approach I, I've quite liked. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I have time for some of the Richard Hell singles mm. as well and what mm. Robert Quine is doing in that era. Um, I mean, the Marianne Faithful album is intriguing because this was a complete reinvention. And again, it was a reinvention um, that firmly put her in the new wave vanguard because there's quite spiky guitar playing, quite Fripp-influenced guitar playing on this album. And her voice has completely changed. It, it's amazing to think what it would have been like to have heard this had you been a huge fan of Faithful in the 60s where she had this heavenly voice. Mm singing very pretty ballads. And suddenly she comes back with foul-mouthed tirades, guitar dissonance. Yeah, she's like, she um, sounds like the female Tom Waits on this album, doesn't she? Absolutely. And I, I mean that in a good way. I, I like this record very much, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and the title track is fantastic, and yeah. How Do You Do It is one of the most yeah, yeah. vicious pieces. With lyrics lyrics by Heathcote Williams, right? Lyrics by Heathcote Williams. Heathcote Williams, Williams yeah. wrote those, and, and they are... Yeah absolutely foul lyrics and um, amazing piece of music but but a great production I mean that album sounds good mm. and um, you know once more I'd say if we're talking about kind of older artists who suddenly found themselves confronted by the scene you know I know we've always disagreed on this to an extent but I always felt Lindsay Buckingham had also reassessed Fleetwood Mac I think Tusk is one of their best most experimental ambitious albums and his soundscape is more bare stripped down and kind of in keeping with the era I, I love Tusk, but I, I, you know, I think the the influence from punk is overstated on Tusk. You know, you listen to a track like "It's Not That Funny," which everyone says, "Oh, it's Lindsey Buckingham doing punk." <laughs> no, it still sounds closer to Super Tramp than Sex Pistols. Sorry, but it does. And I, again, I love it. So don't don't get me wrong. I think Tusk is an extraordinary. For me, let's let's talk about Tusk because I, I think this is uh, an example of a band that have just had an extraordinarily massively successful mainstream album 
basically gambling everything on the follow-up album. I mean, not only is it a double album, it's, an, it's a double album which is all over the place. The title track is the first single. I mean, wow, what a brave choice of single to release the title track from yeah. Tusk. And I still think that for me, that's the highlight of the album for me because it sounds, it's mad. I mean, it's like it's like it's like marching music, isn't it? It's I don't know, I don't know how you describe it, but did, yeah, yeah. did they have like a, a whole bunch of cheerleaders in the video and all this stuff? It's it's absolutely insane, but it's also a fantastic piece of pop. Yeah, that obeys no rules. It obeys no rules at all. Yeah, it always has Afrobeat elements in it. You know, you're right. Cheerleading music, Afrobeat, some great guitar playing from. Buckingham and an arrangement that makes no sense. Yeah, as you say, yeah, incredibly memorable. I will reach for Tusk ten times more often than I will reach for Rumours or Fleetwood Mac. Uh, I, I can see, you know, I think what's interesting is yes, you can see how New Wave has rubbed off on them. I, I, well, I think Buckingham's production on the drums is quite interesting and there is intentionally a more stripped down sound. But I think yeah. what's interesting is once more, maybe they're going back to their root influences so you can actually hear aspects of kind of Everly Brothers guitar in what he's doing rather than punk or early Beatles even. There's something in that stripped down sound on the album. But, you know, for me, it's got a couple of Stevie Nicks best ballads. They definitely have taken the sound somewhere else. But it's still soft rock to me. Um, you know, and again, that's not a bad thing. Super Traps Breakfast in America is this year, which, of course, is just mm. their masterpiece for me. Um, uh, ELO's Discovery, which you mentioned again, another very mainstream pop band, making a very convincing album, which seems to tip its head, tip its hat, I should say, to perhaps a little bit more of what's going on. But let's let's yeah. just go back. Let's go back to singer songwriters for me. We talked about Marion Faithful, Alex Chilton. There's also Lou Reed's The Bells from this year, the first Ricky Lee Jones album, which is a great. Uh, this is one of the rare examples of a new a new singer songwriter on the block making a fantastic debut record. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Mingus. We've talked about Joni again. Um, yeah. Perhaps not one of our most significant records, but still a, a great record, you know. And it's kind oh, of a wonderful album. It's a yeah. it's a high concept record in the sense it's a it's a tribute to to Charlie Mingus, obviously. Um, but let's you know maybe we should talk about um, what's going on in the in the absolute mainstream at this time because this is a fascinating time for mainstream pop. Um, now, Lord knows you would never describe the Police or Squeeze or even the jam as punk groups or madness as punk groups or the specials or Elvis Costello, as you mentioned earlier, as punk groups. But it's like I said to you at the top of the episode, it's hard to imagine any of these acts existing or existing in the mainstream without mm. punk happening in the interim. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I do. And I think the perception at the time is that they were part of the new guard. I think there was suspicion with the police because they were older and they were clearly very musically accomplished, all of them. Um, but certainly bands like Elvis Costello, Squeeze, um, Ian Jury, um, the perception was that they had risen with the new wave. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of those bands that you just mentioned actually came not from punk, but they came from the pub rock scene uh, yeah. in the UK. Certainly Elvis Costello, Ian Jury, uh, Squeeze, The Jam to an extent had all kind of grown up and paid their dues by playing the pub scene. And I suppose they'd kind of been assimilated into 
you know, into this punk tag uh, almost unwittingly, but they kind of rode that wave, didn't they? Now, the police were slightly different because they came perhaps a year or two after the explosion of punk. But you can definitely hear the, I think it's more to do with the kind of uh, the urgency and the delivery, that kind of energetic delivery that you hear on, particularly on those yeah. first two police albums, which for me are the two, are my two favourite police albums, Alanis de More, mm. Regatta de Blanc. The first track on the first police album, I know it's not this year, it's the previous album, but uh, next to you, straight mm. away you're into this incredibly urgent uh, they're on fire, you know. There's a three-piece mm. on fire, and it, so it is very much that punk aesthetic, isn't it? Now we get to Regatta de Blanc, and they are starting. Sting is starting to really write very sophisticated pop songs, yeah. which are becoming almost, you know, without fail, becoming number one hits. You know, um, mm. and the other thing we talked about, you know, the Public Image album having a strong influence on reggae. Of course, even the title of the album, Regatta de Blanc, White Reggae tips its hat to the fact that there's a strong influence here from black music and, and reggae music and Jamaican music. Yeah. And I think that was what was really special about The Police, wasn't it? Somewhere between reggae and new wave and pure pop, they came up with this perfect combination. The other thing I love about The Police is they're one of the last bands I can think of where you can instantly recognise every single musician in that band within two bars of them playing. Stuart Copeland, yeah. Sting, Andy Summers, instantly recognisable. The only other band I can think of that were a kind of a peak at this era that you can say the same of would be Rush. You know, instantly you can hear Alex mm. Lifeson, Geddy Lee O'Neill, and you know instantly who these musicians are. There aren't many bands like that. There have not been many bands like that in history, but the police are definitely one of them, aren't they? Well, that's going to be my point, actually, yeah, that individually they were also recognizable and also gifted and you know one of the things that always um appealed to me you know copeland and a stunning drummer Amazing. but um summer's use of of chords you know his sound yeah. was superb mm. his chord voicings were unique mm. and this was a band that managed simultaneously to be extremely clever yet extremely direct and popular um and as you say Within about two bars, you can recognise every single instrumentalist. I know there are only three, and yes, Rush were definitely another example. Maybe, you know, Japan a couple of years later. Mm. And of course, when you get to mm. bands like U2, The Edge is instantly recognisable. It's also fair to say that, you know, Will Sargent is recognisable with Echo and the Bunnymen. So you get... But you do. whole band exactly. where every exactly. single player... Th this was my point. You can this was my point, yeah. I mean, public image, um, you could have said. Yeah, I mean, th th yes, uh, this is my point, that it's very hard to find a band where every single person in that band uh, has such a signature sound. But you're absolutely right in, in mentioning Japan. Steve Jansen, Mick Kahn, Richard Barbieri, instantly recognisable. You know, you, you almost just have to hear one sound and you know exactly Absolutely. who you're listening to. And the police are like that. But I mean, again, if you take all of that and you and you connect it to a songwriter as good as Sting, you know, Walking on the Moon, Message in a Bottle on these rec on, on this album, uh, two, two number one singles, um, just just a, a, a perfect storm, a confluence of, of genius in one band. And another example of a band where I wouldn't say they had the life of a Mayf Mayflower. They had they had a few good years, you mm. know, but they seem to be each other's throats almost from the beginning, because it's like when you have that much talent and that much ego in one band, 
it's almost doomed from the start, isn't it? Um, yeah. But they burned very, very brightly for a very short time. I mean, I think the, all five police albums, I think, have something to recommend them. But for me, the first two. Yeah. And all five of them have got their own character as well. Yes. I think the first yeah. two are linked in the sense that you're right. The first album, they come out and they are the police. The second album is the perfect refinement of that first album and arguably is their best. But I've got a lot of time for um, synchronicity and Ghost in the Machine as well, you know, where they're obviously stretching the sound palette and not losing any of that gift. Okay, I think this is a good point, Tim, for us to pause on 1979. We said we were going to do two parts to this show because there's so many albums that we want to talk about and we don't want to overlook anything and we don't want to skim over anything. So let's call it a day on part one here and uh, say thank you very much for listening and we will see you very soon as we begin part two of 1979. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. (laughs) 